Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Murphy's League. Today's episode, I am a little bit under the weather, so bear with me. My voice is not sounding <laughs> great at all. Um, but I'm going to be recapping week four of the NFL. going to be talking about some teams and players that are under the most pressure. I will admit I didn't get to watch as much football as I normally do this weekend because I was <clears throat> at the Tennessee Volunteers game this weekend. They were playing the Gamecocks. I ended up blowing them out. It was a really, really fun experience. Shout out Cole for letting me come along with that because it was a hell of a time. Had a great one. But obviously, there were some side effects. I'm a little under the weather because of it. <laughs> Really good time, but not a lot of sleep, a lot of alcohol, so my body's just totally recovering right now. Either way, I still was able to catch some of the games, was able to watch you know, some of the highlights, a little bit of the film, watch the Bears film, um, pulled my hair out watching that one. But I'm going to be talking about some teams under the most pressure, as well as players under the most pressure, and then I'm going to be talking about the Damian Lillard trade, because... Obviously, this is more of a football podcast, but I do like to talk about basketball news when it does come around, and Damian Lillard being one of my favorite players in the NBA. This was, you know, something that was talked about for a couple months, obviously, since he requested the trade, and now it finally happened, so I'm here to break it down from the Suns' side, from uh, the Trailblazers' side, and of course, from Milwaukee's point of view. So, there will be timestamps located down below, as per usual, and this might be a little bit of a shorter episode per usual, because than usual, excuse me, just because, again, I was out and about this weekend, wasn't able to watch too much, but still here, still doing it, um, despite my sickness, if I sound horrible, I'm sorry, just gonna have to deal with it, and without further ado, let's get into some teams who are under the most pressure. I'm getting really pissed off recording this because there's just so much commotion going on outside my window and I'm trying to like figure out where on campus I can record and like rent a studio out but all that shit's like you gotta like actually rent one and like spend money on it so I don't know if my studio is just gonna like become my my car I I don't know what I'm gonna do but trying to get through it I'm just in a really bad mood because we're working off very little sleep and as you know already I'm pretty sick but we're gonna get through it so Let's talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm sorry if there's a lot of background noise. Uh, This will be the last episode I'm going to record in this bedroom. We're going to figure out somewhere else to do it. I promise you. We'll figure it out. Just bear with me. All right. Now, let's talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. Because this is a team that I think has to be under the most pressure out of any team in the entirety of the NFL. Just given where their expectations were before the beginning of the season. Compared to where they are now. Obviously falling to 1-3 this weekend. Losing against the Tennessee Titans. And Joe Burrow really looked like how he looked the first two weeks. He's had spurts of that classic Joe Burrow. You know, Joe Cool. We saw in the second half against the Rams. But he really hasn't put together an entire game yet. And the stats really do back it up. It's just crazy to think that this team was consistent contenders in the AFC. And now they are looking like legitimately one of the worst teams in the entirety of the league. I think I was a little too dismissive on the severity of this calf injury. And it's not so much the injury itself, but it's the time that Joe Burrow missed because of the injury, obviously missing the entirety of the offseason. Now looking out of sync with his receivers. But all in all, it's just... A mindset thing to me it's it's really weird to see Joe Burrow and I know there is an element of it it's hard to plant your foot um, when there's a calf injury like that and he can't put you know you know 100% full force behind a lot of these throws but honestly 
it's a mentality thing for me. Joe Burrow is known for his confidence. He's known for giving his receivers a shot. Even if they're covered, he's going to give his guys a chance. Joe Burrow really hasn't done that this year. There's times where he's, you know, choosing not to take the aggressive throw, even though, in my opinion, it is there some of the times, and choosing to go for the check down instead. Even then, he's just out of sync with a lot of these guys. I think, again, majority of this is just a mental thing. And as these frustrations go grow excuse me it might only get worse but the stats really do back it up they're lasting yards per game as a team they're only averaging 182 passing yards per game which i think is third to last if i'm not mistaken uh joe burrow has a 57.6 completion percentage two touchdowns to two interceptions so i get it there's factors about this that are you know totally health related but i think a lot of it's just mental joe burrow's not playing like himself he's not playing like the typical joe cool joe burr that we're used to seeing he's not playing with that same confidence and aggressiveness it's almost a level of cockiness where it's like are you really going to throw that ball and then he just trusts his guys to go make a play that's what joe burrow has really you know made a name for himself even dating back to college that's what he did so well at LSU. He just gave his guys a chance and played with the utmost confidence. I'm not seeing that at all from Joe Burrow this year. I think, again, a lot of it has to do with the mental strains of this injury, but there's times where just give their guys a chance, rip into it. And again, maybe that's because he fully you know, can't plant the foot, but climbing out of a one and three hole is super tough. And now their, their schedule is no cakewalk. I mean, if you're just looking at their next three or four games, they're at Arizona, which before the season, we would have said, you know, that should be an easy win, but we've seen the Cardinals could easily be three and one right now. They really are a really competitive team. Got to give them a lot of credit for what they've been able to do. And then they have the Seahawks at home, which of course Seahawks, that's, that's a great football team as well. A lot of depth, great coaching there. I love some of the young players. Then it's their bye week, so hopefully Joe Burrow can come, you know, rest up, get healthy because the next two games are absolutely brutal. Going into Santa Clara and playing the San Francisco 49ers, and then the Bills are visiting them at home. It's just there's not an easy game on this schedule at all. It's, of course, they won their division last year, so they have a division winning schedule that's reflective in that. And it's almost now or never for the Bengals. I mean, it really is now or never for the Bengals. You slip to one and four, your chances of making the playoffs are significantly lower. And even at one and three, it's a very tall task to say that they can possibly still win this division. I think the best case scenario they're looking at right now is a wild card appearance. But again, I think so much this has to come down to Joe Burrow, his mental side of it, his confidence, because we know how talented this team can be. This roster really hasn't had much turnover from those teams that made the AFC championship games. So you just expect to see more from Joe Burrow and his guys up next. Let's talk about the New York giants. This is, I mean, this is a team that's honestly, they're lucky that they have a win over the Cardinals. This team could easily be at zero and four. I know that they have dealt with some injuries, but on the flip side of that, the Seahawks, they had a ton of injuries along their offensive line too, and it didn't look nearly as bad as it did for the New York Giants. So starting with the injuries, I mean, obviously Andrew Thomas, who is arguably their best player, has been out for a couple weeks now. Saquon has been out, but even in this last game against the Seahawks, uh, John Michael Schmitz, their excellent rookie center, in my opinion, went out. Evan Neal, who... Don't get me wrong, Evan Neal has had a very rough start to his career, but still a starting caliber tackle for this team. He went out in this game, and then Oziz Ojolari re-aggravated an injury. Probably their best edge rusher, he went out in this one. 
So yes, there's absolutely some blame to be placed on Daniel Jones and nearly anyone would have folded on under this kind of pressure. Like that's just 11 sacks in a game. I don't know how you can win a football doing that, but overall it's just there's a lot going wrong for this team of course injuries as i mentioned but there's just bad decision making from the quarterback position we saw that in that throw to paris campbell that ended up being a pick six for devon witherspoon uh, which i'll get to in a second because i want to give devon his flowers he played excellent in this game overall this was a team that was definitely expecting to regress a lot from last year however I really didn't think it was going to be this ugly. I mean, they're last in points per game. They're third to last in passing yards. They're second to last in total yards. And I really don't see a very viable way where they get this flipped around early, uh, quickly. Because again, these guys, even though Saquon might be back by next week, you know, you expect Andrew Thomas to come back sooner rather than later. I haven't heard anything yet about John Michael Schmitz or Aziz Ozolari's injuries. So you, yeah, you don't expect it to be too severe if you haven't heard anything immediately off the bat. But at least for now, they're out indefinitely. So again, starting caliber players on both sides of the line of scrimmage, which is really how the Giants were so successful last year. They had a lot of success running the ball with Saquon Barkley. Daniel Jones was just playing mistake-free. That has not been the case this year. And then on the flip side of that, they were getting consistent pressure from guys like Dexter Lawrence. And then Kayvon Thibodeau would occasionally come in, Aziz Ojolari, those guys off the edge. They weren't you know, absolute superstars by any means, but they were just solid contributors. We really haven't seen that to start this year. They've been getting dominated on both sides of the line of scrimmage. We just saw that against the Seahawks. Of course, the best example of that was that Dallas Cowboys game, but even worse, the Giants have only led for, I think it was like 12 seconds this year when they made that miraculous comeback against the Arizona Cardinals, which again, you play that game nine times over from halftime, I really don't know if they find a way to win that game. That was Daniel Jones playing out of his mind and the Cardinals just frankly making too many mistakes in that game and giving them opportunities to put themselves in a position where they could be there. So the Newark Giants, I mean, this is not a good look for them at all. And now their next two games, they go into Miami and into Buffalo. This could be a team that not only should they be 0-4, you could argue that after these two weeks, they should be 0-6. So... The New York Giants, definitely a team that I was expecting to regress. I just didn't expect it to be this ugly this early. And if you're a Giants fan, I mean, I think that you have to feel really, really disappointed. Obviously, your coach last year, winning coach of the year, Daniel Jones, signing that massive four-year, $160 million extension. I think panic has to be setting in at least a little bit, right? Because Daniel Jones not playing too well. A lot of these injuries and a lot of these guys that you expected to be cornerstones of the franchise are not living up to the expectations. And of course, what do you do with guys like Saquon Barkley, where he signed the franchise tag, is now injured again? I'm assuming you don't end up paying him. It's just a really interesting situation. And I have to feel for Giants fans because, you know, there was tons of reasons to be hopeful they had a really great rookie rookie class last year and the year before that frankly i really like their rookie draft class this year as well i still think deontay banks is an excellent player i still like jms a lot but just from what you've seen so far it has not been good enough on the flip side of that i do want to give the seattle seahawks a lot of credit i mean they had no starters on their o-line playing from week one to this game but they kept Geno Smith upright for the most part. Devon Witherspoon, he was absolutely everywhere in this game. I mentioned it a little earlier with that pick six. He really showed why he was ranked as my cornerback one in this draft class. But I mean, 
two sacks and of course that 97 yard pick six he was playing amazing in this game of course that wasn't a good throw by daniel jones even if it was supposed to be that zig route because it looked like he hit him you know on the outside shoulder devon witherspoon was all over that you shouldn't throw that even if that was supposed to be a, or even if that wasn't a slant excuse me um devon was just all over that so the new york giants have to be feeling the pressure definitely have to be you know <laughs> there's just such little room for error after this point also, I'm sorry if I'm keeping this a little brief. My brain is not really where it normally is when I'm recording this, and I'm sure you guys can already figure out why. Uh, did a lot of traveling this weekend, went to Tennessee. Obviously, not feeling too good as far as the sickness goes, but nonetheless, we're doing it for you guys. Uh, hopefully, you know you guys still enjoy the content. Up next, let's move on to the Minnesota Vikings. This is another team very similar to the Giants that I thought would regress, but I did not think it was going to be this bad. They've almost like hit the exact opposite where they've regressed so far back to the mean where it's like it's almost incredible how they were what 12 and 5 last year and now they're looking like one of the worst teams in football and I mean I guess a lot of it just has to do not I guess I know a lot of it has to do they just have far far too many turnovers they're actually tied with the Giants for the second worst turnover differential in the league right now uh, despite this they're actually third in the league in passing yards per game of course you know game script pads those stats because they have been down in a lot of these games but even with uh or excuse me even even then, without that fumble against Bryce Young by DJ Wanham, who, you know, it was a fumble six, who knows if they can sneak by the Carolina Panthers. It's kind of the same argument for the Giants, where you can make a serious argument if a couple things don't go right for the Minnesota Vikings. This team could be 0-4 right now, and it's going to be really interesting to see what they end up doing with Kirk Cousins, because, you know, you would imagine if they end up a top 10 picking team in the league, which they're on pace for right now. Do they restart at quarterback? Do they try to get rid of Kirk Cousins before then? Do they even try to get rid of him at the trade deadline? Could a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Atlanta Falcons or the New York Jets step in? I don't think the New York Jets are very realistic. I think that they want Zach Wilson to be the guy there this year and then wait for Aaron Rodgers to come back. But either way, it makes for an interesting conversation to see what do the Minnesota Vikings do? This is obviously a team that has not been very familiar with being one of the worst teams in the league. They're normally never around the bottom of the league. I don't really think they are by any means either. I think their record is a little deceiving. But again, when you have this many turnovers, it's really, really hard to win games. I don't expect that trend to continue. I think they will end up bouncing back at least a little bit because this is just unprecedented amount of turnovers and unprecedented amounts of unluckiness. Again, you could argue that uh, they probably shouldn't have beaten, <clears throat> or excuse me, they probably shouldn't have lost to the Los Angeles Chargers. Brandon Staley did his best to throw that game away from them. But either way, the Minnesota Vikings have to be under immense pressure and there could be serious changes coming in their future if they don't get it turned around very quickly here. Up next, let's talk about the New England Patriots, especially Mac Jones. I mean, the New England Patriots, they have to decide if they want to pick up Mac Jones' fifth-year option by the end of this year. And thus far in this season, he has certainly had his ups and downs. I thought he actually played pretty well in the elements against the New York Jets. Obviously, New York Jets have one of the best defenses in the entirety of the league. I was impressed with what he was able to do there. But again, the downs come with a game that we just saw against the Dallas Cowboys. That was really, really ugly. I know Dallas Cowboys at home, that's not a tough opponent to play at all, but Mac Jones' decision-making was just not up to par in this game at all. For example, that pick six, 
that was just never going to be a good decision. You should never throw across the grain against your body like that. Uh, that was served to Deron Bland on an absolute silver platter. And now they have had some major injuries that they dealt with in this game, which again just puts the pressure on them even more so. Obviously, they were already beat up in their secondary. Now Christian Gonzalez is out indefinitely, who was honestly looking like their best cornerback, even for a rookie. He was playing very, very well, was really impressed with what he was able to do. But beyond that, Marcus Jones remains on IR. Jonathan Jones still dealing with that ankle injury. And then, of course, the biggest injury of all, Matthew Judon will miss at least two months. Honestly, I'm going to be surprised if he even comes back this season. Tearing a muscle, nevertheless a bicep for a pass rusher, that's a very, very big deal. Um, and Matthew Judon, one of the, not only, you know, probably the Patriots best player, but one of the best pass rushers in the entirety of the league, you know, a tone setter for this new England defense. That is really their bread and butter. That's what they've done so well throughout the first few weeks of the league. They have one of the better defenses in the league, despite the injuries that they've been dealing with. Now the injuries are piling up even more. Um, I really don't see a way where the New England Patriots can get this turned around. They better win their next two games because they're both winnable, in my opinion. And then after that, it gets really rough. I mean, you got the Saints at home, and then you go into Las Vegas. You better turn around and be 500 by the bef after those two games, excuse me, um, because if not, you're going <laughs> to the Dolphins, and you have the Bills at home the two weeks after that. So, I mean... You better hope you get this thing turned around because if not, it can get ugly rather quickly. Up next, let's talk about Desmond Ritter. Arthur Smith has explicitly said that he doesn't want to make a change at the quarterback position, but again, we know how things can change very, very quickly in this league, and Ritter looks like he really is holding this team back. I've been very impressed from what I've seen from the Atlanta Falcons as a, as a whole, but Desmond Ritter is just not performing at nearly the level where he needs to be i said explicitly in this podcast before that i really like this atlanta falcons roster i love what they did as far as the offseason i think adding jeff okuda was a great value pick jesse bates has been playing like the absolute best free safety in the league proving why you know he was worth the money that they gave him I, he is the number one ranked safety via pff right now david Onyemata was another addition that i really really liked he's been playing very well across from grady jarrett um Bijan Robinson, obviously a stud out of the backfield, does a lot more than just running the ball effectively. He's a great weapon coming out of there too. I love their offensive line, Chris Lingstrom, Caleb McGarry, uh, their center, who I'm forgetting the name of right now. Those are all excellent pieces along this offensive line. The point I'm trying to make is Desmond Ritter just needs to be a B minus guy, but frankly, he's playing like, like a D minus or an F guy. This guy is not pulling through for them at all. Out of the 34 quarterbacks who qualify for PFF grading, he is literally dead last. He's also, excuse me, also dead last in yards per game in terms of passing yards at 156. Three touchdowns to three interceptions with a 77.9 passer rating. For reference, 90s is considered average. 100 is great. So, again, this is a team, a roster that in a division that's not very good that I think could win this division and seriously compete for it. But Desmond Ritter, if he continues to play this way, he's going to find his way out of Atlanta. There's just no question about it. You can't find, you know, sustainable success with a quarterback playing this badly. And I think a really interesting idea and something that I read earlier, I can't remember where I read it. I believe it was on ESPN. I don't know the writer who said it, so I'm sorry about that. But I think Justin Fields going to the Atlanta Falcons would make a ton of sense for both sides. Um, you know, Justin still has a ton of talent 
obviously not really working out in Chicago right now. I, there are factors that are controllable that he definitely <clears throat> could be doing better. A lot of it does have to do with coaching as well. You know, the Chicago Bears are just a crapshoot right now. Um, I could talk about them for fucking 50 minutes on this episode with all the things going wrong there. Obviously, the Denver Broncos game this weekend was an example of that, but there's still a lot to like from a talent point of view. And just from a schematical perspective, I think it would make a lot of sense to go into this super run-heavy offense that the Atlanta Falcons run, play action off of that, and just give him these receivers to play with that are <clears throat> just monsters as far as catch radius. You can be rather inaccurate, and it's not really going to matter because these guys can catch it over the head of their DBs guarding them. And I don't know. Beyond that, I think the one last player slash team I have to bring up under the most pressure is the Chicago Bears. Obviously, Chicago Bears had a lot of pressure coming into this year. Justin Fields, Matt Eberflus included. I think both of those guys have to be on the chopping block right now. I mean, just given the expectations, sorry if you can hear that truck, by the way, given the expectations this team had and where they're performing right now, it is just so so far beyond me that they can be this bad i was truly not expecting them to be worse than they were last year but it really does look like they were and the fact that they were up 28 to 7 i believe it was i don't think it was ever 21 nothing against the denver broncos and you have a defensive-minded head coach who is now calling plays and you allow a team like that to come back on you i know that there were some other factors like that weird fumble six that Justin Fields had obviously you have to blame him there but the defense just could not make a stop at the end of the game and then of course it comes back to this coaching staff that they went for it on that fourth and three or fourth and two I believe it was on the 18 yard line instead of taking the field goal I know there's the whole analytics game behind it where it's like if you do end up converting on this then the odds go up by x percent that you win this football game but fuck that man just like just take the points when you can get it i'm gonna pause this really quick sorry about that bus bus outside my window either way i wasn't too upset about the actual um play call i know a lot of people have been drawing attention to that but i don't hate the rpo option there it's just don't call the play just why are we doing that and they tried to draw them off sides didn't work they called a timeout and then you're thinking like okay a field goal unit's going to come out that actually makes sense that you want to draw them off sides you know if they do get going end up being off sides on that fourth down that pretty much ices the game because you can just draw the clock out and kick a field goal whenever you're ready but then the offense came back onto the field oh motorcycle sorry and I just truly do not understand that at all. That decision-making does not make sense to me in the slightest. I really think the Bears just shot themselves in the foot in this one. And it was just two, honestly, really bad teams just exchanging bad decisions with each other. So I was really frustrated as a Bears fan to watch that one. Sorry if you could hear that. Um, it's gone now. But let's talk about a more positive note. Let's talk about a different Ohio State quarterback that has been very 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 impressive let's talk about cj stroud this dude is playing out of his mind i'm not going to cover in too much detail because frankly i didn't watch a single snap of his from this past weekend but i know that nico collins has been playing really well and cj stroud let's just talk about some numbers really quick before i move on according to pff this season on third and fourth downs he's 37 for 54 for 490 yards and four touchdowns particularly on third down he's got a passer rating of 126.7 
He's that's first, by the way. First and first downs converted. First and adjusting adjusted completion percentage. If you don't know what that is, that just accounts for drops. Uh, first in yards, third in yards per attempt, and first and third down touchdowns. This dude is doing it all. He still hasn't thrown an interception. He absolutely blew out one of the better defenses in the league in the Pittsburgh Steelers this weekend. I mean, I cannot emphasize enough how impressive this is. Like, there's so few rookies in the history of the NFL that have, have put up these types of numbers, and the ones that did are some of the better rookie seasons in NFL history. He's up there with Cam Newton, or, you know, Robert Griffin III, Justin Herbert, all had amazing historic rookie years he is on pace with those types of guys and right now the texans are two and two and they're looking like a team that can compete in the afc south with anybody i gotta say i'm super super impressed with what they're able to do i liked a lot of their free agent acquisitions i liked what they did in the draft to a certain extent because obviously if the quarterback hits if will anderson hits that is the quickest turnaround in nfl history going from you know picking second and third overall to having these huge tremendous impact guys on your roster but frankly the risk for me was just it's a great risk you're trading a lot of assets to go get these two cornerstone pieces of your franchise and those cornerstones they don't always work out and if they don't the whole building's coming down so Sorry if you heard that outside my window again. Again, bear with me, guys. I'm going to be getting the studio soon because I just cannot deal with all this fucking noise outside my window. And I know how annoying it is for you guys, too. But if you're still listening to this, I really do appreciate it. Overall, let's. I just want to wrap up my NFL segment of this podcast by just saying CJ Stroud is playing so much better than I ever thought he would. Not ever. Obviously, you never know what's going to end up happening in the future. But just as an immediate day one rookie and honestly as a whole this texans team is just really really impressing me with what they've been able to do and it's really fun to see because texans fans have gone through it they've been in the gutter for you know about two decades now and i think there's a lot of hope right now and a lot of encouragement and it's really fun for the league so with all that being said let's get into the dame lillard talk all right so damian lillard is a milwaukee buck First, let's start from the Bucks' point of view of this trade. Giannis used his leverage very, very well to get this trade done. He expressed that he wants to finish his career as a Buck, but if he felt like there was a better opportunity to win a championship elsewhere, he would not, you know, be hesitant to go somewhere else. So that was a very smart decision from him. We saw that, you know, Kobe did that early in his career when it looked like he was going to get traded to the Bulls. The Lakers ended up making an aggressive move for Pau Gasol, won a couple more rings out of it. So from that point of view, it makes a ton of sense that Giannis would go out and say something like this. And it worked for him. I mean, good for him. Dame and Giannis are now together. They are on the same team. There's just two of you know, the top 10, in my opinion, best players, maybe 15, if, you know, you're a little lower on Damian Lillard because his defense isn't quite there. Either way, these are two of the most unstoppable players in the entirety of the league now together. And of course, you know, beyond that, you got Brooke Lopez, you got Chris Middleton, uh, you got, you know, other depth pieces like a Jay Crowder and like a Pat Connington that can contribute in a playoff series. But... Damon Giannis pick and roll is going to be the single most unstoppable play in basketball next to like the Jokic Murray pick and roll. Plus you got Lopez and Middleton spacing the floor from you. I mean, this team can literally score from anywhere. Once you get past half court, you have to respect this team just 
regardless. I mean, you got Dame working the perimeter. You got Giannis in the paint. That is just going to be so nasty. Of course, you did give up Drew Holiday, and that defensively will make a difference. There will be teams. Bill Simmons made a great point about this. Teams are going to pick on Damian Lillard. He is the biggest liability on defense on this team because this is such a sound defensive team. So teams are going to be going after Damian Lillard. And there's a lot of really, really good guards in this league. But frankly, I don't know how much it's going to matter because Dame is just going to be able to outscore a lot of those guys anyways. We know how lethal he can be from beyond the arc, but he can finish around the rim. He's got a mid-game, mid-range game as well. This is a dude that, you know, guard on guard, he can outscore anybody in the league on any given night. And it's going to be really, really fun to watch because I think that Giannis and Brooke Lopez, obviously Brooke Lopez was top three in DPOY voting last year. Giannis has a two-time defensive player of the year. I think they're going to be able to make up for some of those inconsistencies that Damian Lillard has on defense. Not even inconsistencies, just straight up bad defense that Damian Lillard has. Obviously on the perimeter, it's not going to be quite the same because Drew Holiday, clearly a perimeter defender being a guard himself, Damian Lillard is just not that caliber player in the slightest. But offensively, what he's able to bring and what the, he... Like, wasn't there before is just unprecedented and it's going to be so exciting to watch with Giannis uh, again I don't know if they're immediate title contenders I think a lot of people are saying they are I'm gonna to have to wait and see how it plays out because I think the Celtics did get better obviously they lost some depth there but they themselves added Drew Holiday which is to me an upgrade over Marcus Smart I know that he's gone he's on Memphis now and they did have to give up some other depth pieces as far as Malcolm Brogdon who was you know in contention or did he win six man of the year I believe he won six man of the year um either way <clears throat> let's get back to the Bucks really quickly because we're not going to get into Drew Holiday quite yet this is a two-year window for the Bucks Giannis has two years left on his deal as well as Dame and Middleton so of course if it doesn't exactly work out the way they wanted to this year they deal with some injuries they can run it back the year after that and it doesn't just put them in an absolute bind uh, whereas some of these other teams might be in more of a bind when they make a super aggressive move like this again this is a two-year window and i think that there's a really good chance they could pull it off just given what they can do offensively now they've never quite had a duo like this i'm gonna pause this really quick God, I'm going to lose my mind with all this noise, dude. I need to figure this shit out. Either way, I think if you are a Bucks fan, you have to be feeling extremely excited for your chances this year. But let's look at this from the Blazers' point of view because obviously this was a really, really hard, you know, hand of cards to be dealt with Damian Lillard requesting a trade, basically putting him in a bind saying he only wants to go to Miami. But I think they did a really, really good job at getting excellent value back for him. Not only getting Drew Holiday and then end up flipping him, but when you look at it all together and what they got, it's hard to predict where a team will be in 2028 and 2029 and 2030. That is when they got the picks. Um, I believe it was a 2029 first rounder regardless, and then the option of a swap in 28 and 30. But it makes a lot of sense to get picks that far in the future in the same sense because that's when you expect Giannis and Dame and Middleton to not, no longer be on this team. So that would be the time frame where they're in a little bit more of a rebuild phase. So from that point of view, it totally makes sense to get picks around that time. And honestly, I really like adding Aiton. I think this is a dude who's been incredibly undervalued just for factors, you know, beyond his control it's clear that him and monty williams did not get along too well some of his other teammates probably didn't like him too much there's rumors of frustrations in that locker room stemming from him but 
he was a former number one overall pick. We cannot forget about that. The talent is absolutely there. And for those reasons, I honestly think he's being a little bit undervalued. I know that <clears throat> the Suns wanted to get rid of him just purely for a cap space standpoint, but I just don't get what they really got back for him. I really don't think they got any quality rotation pieces. Uh, I don't think Yusuf Nurkic is very good. He's been dealing with a lot of injuries. Nasir Little is someone that's just not very consistent as far as being a dominant, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week player. Even just not even dominant. That's like a that's asking too much of him, but just a solid contributor. I really don't think he's doing too much of that either. I get it. They wanted to dump Aiden's cap hit, but Aiden, whatever you think of him, he's not a bad player. He's really not. And he's definitely not worse than Yusuf Nurkic. He's definitely not. Yusuf Nurkic is 100% not an upgrade over him. I will say that. And from that point of view, I really don't understand it from the Suns. I get that they had to get rid of some cap space and they added a few more players and Grace and Allen can do some decent things on defense. But overall, I really just don't think they got too many contributors. I completely understand just getting numbers over you know one guy they brought in three guys for one so from that point of view i understand it because this was a team that was lacking a ton of depth but that doesn't mean that you know adding subpar to average players doesn't make your depth that much better you know what i mean it's like how much of a difference does it really make it almost feels like a wash in it they were just super desperate to get rid of Aiton and the cap space and from the blazers point of view I think that's a really good value to get him at. It totally makes sense for me. And then if you're including the Drew Holiday piece in this, Drew Holiday's 34 years old, two years left on his deal. He blatantly stated that he wants to retire after this deal. So to give him to a contending team like the Celtics makes sense for them. And then getting back what they got back, two first rounders, Robert Williams, who's still young himself and you know can compete with DeAndre Ayton for time on the floor. And then Malcolm Brogdon, who I just mentioned earlier, coming off as sixth man of the year, makes a lot of sense from the Blazers point of view. So all in all, when you look at it all together, the Blazers were able to get a 2028 first, excuse me, a 2029 first, a 2030 pick swap, a 2024 first, a 2029 first from the Celtics, and then Brogdon and Robert Williams. I mean, I don't really know how you can get much better of a package from anyone for Damian Lillard because he was out regardless. Obviously, they didn't have a lot of leverage in this situation, but they used the little leverage they had to their advantage. Um, Obviously, the Suns had very little leverage in the situation, but they ended up getting a lot less back than the Blazers were able to get back for their guy. Um, Don't get me wrong. I totally understand it's a different situation entirely, but I just think that the that uh portland handled the situation much better they didn't panic they didn't just rush to make a trade with miami when dame said he wanted to be there they stayed patient obviously the bucks came forward as another team that were interested in damian lillard's talents and they ended up making it work out and i feel like they made the absolute most out of a really bad situation in my opinion it's hard when a superstar wants out of your team and <clears throat> leaves you with very little room besides you know, just trading him. You have to trade him. You have to get rid of him. Uh, he's stated that he's not going to be playing for the team. And to be able to get back what they got back from a guy who, you know, had all the leverage in the world when you're given so little of it, I thought it was a really good value for the Portland Trailblazers. So that's going to do it for today's episode. I know it's a little bit shorter than usual, but again, I'm pretty under the weather right now. So I'm not really feeling like myself. And 
God, excuse me. And again, I wasn't able to watch too much football this weekend because I was traveling, having a lot of fun. Again, shout out Cole. Really, really grateful he brought me to the Tennessee football game. Uh, that was a ton of fun. Got to see him whip ass against South Carolina Gamecocks. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it's not really my best, but still putting out content for you guys i hope you enjoyed it nonetheless and stay tuned because there will be more content thursday gonna find a better place to record by then uh appreciate each and every single one of y'all and peace out